Welcome to the Bone Coach Show, dedicated to helping you understand all things related to diet, lifestyle, bone health, and how you can live and thrive with low bone density and osteoporosis. I'm your host, Kevin Ellis, certified health coach, health and wellness speaker, and above all else, your bone coach. After being diagnosed with osteoporosis in my early 30s, I transformed my health through diet and lifestyle and now help my clients and community members do the same through my online coaching practice, Bone Coach. Look, there are no quick and easy cures for low bone density, but the choices we make every single day can have a powerful impact on our bones, our health, and our general well-being. I'll share the research, interview the experts, and help you figure out how to get the conditions right in your body so you can better your bones through diet and lifestyle. Short disclaimer, I'm not a medical doctor, and this show should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare team before making medical decisions and changes to your diet and lifestyle. With that being said, let's get on with the show. And we now know that over 90% of people, the level of thyroid dysfunction they had could have caused weight gain, could have caused fatigue, could have raised their heart disease risk long-term, could have affected their bones, could have raised the risk for thyroid cancer, could do all that stuff. However, for 90% of people or more, medications will not help any of those problems at all. It'll actually cause more risks for other issues, including bone problems, cancer risk, and total mortality risk. But for almost all people who are put on thyroid medications, it will not help them feel better, lose weight, have less risk of diseases, or have better outcomes. If you haven't done so already, especially if you're newly diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis, or if your most recent bone density scan still showed more bone loss, go ahead and pause this episode and head over to bonecoach.com to sign up for your free seven-day osteoporosis kickstart guide. That's going to give you everything you need step by step by step over the next seven days to get on the path to improvement and stronger bones. You won't want to miss that. So pause this right now, head over to bonecoach.com and I'll be here as soon as you get back. Welcome, welcome to this episode of the Bone Coach Show. Joining us today to explore the health of your thyroid and your bones, Dr. Alan Christensen. Dr. Alan Christensen is a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid care. He is a New York Times bestselling author whose recent titles include The Hormone Healing Cookbook and The Thyroid Reset Diet. Dr. Christensen has been featured on countless media appearances, including Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show. He is the founding president behind the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians and the American College of Thyroidology. Dr. Christensen, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for being here. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me. This would be a good thing. This would be a great conversation. And I always want to start with, maybe you could share your personal journey with how you even became a, a New York Times bestselling author, You've got multiple books, you're a leading integrative health physician. Uh, maybe just share a little bit about that. Boy, yeah. Um, books changed my life. and <laughs> uh, Health messages changed my life. I was a clumsy kid. I had seizures. Um, I couldn't really move right from cerebral palsy. And, you know, I was a bookish kid and I was happy enough in that, in the realm of my mind. But the more I tried to socialize and do things other kids did and play and stuff, the more frustrated I got. And, you know, now we have a term called fat shaming. Back in the 70s, there was no term because that was just what you did. <laughs> it, was, it was just normal. <laughs> and I hated it. Uh, so somewhere around adolescence, I decided to quit being nothing but a space nerd and to go pick up some books in the health section. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. I could do this and I could do that. And, you know, it wasn't straightforward, but I stuck with some things and learned to 
exercise slowly and progressively and learned to change my diet in some ways and totally changed everything. Just phenomenal, you know, and social life changed and everything did. And, and I, and I was a kid. I'm like, well, I'm a kid. And I found this stuff out. There's got to be a huge gap between what people need and what they know, you know, and it became a passion to close that gap and diet and lifestyle were a big thing for me. So I wanted to become a physician, but to do it in a way to where I could really use those things. Yeah. And then hormones seemed like a real link between lifestyle and disease. So I wanted to focus on those and thyroid disease was a natural step. And you specifically took a, an interest in thyroid health. So can you tell, tell us a little bit about why that is? Yeah. So in my residency, I was working with people who were struggling with a lot of issues and lifestyle alone wasn't enough. You know, they tried to lose weight, but they couldn't, and they were already doing all the right stuff. And I was trained at first to like, not believe people think, oh, you're not really being honest or you're not really trying hard enough. But at some point I'm like, no, this is, they are, I, this isn't fitting anymore. And I realized that there's ways in which the body doesn't get its own balance proper. And there's actual disease states that were common. And I saw a huge gap between how this was understood in the conventional world and the natural world. And I saw a couple of real solid ways of understanding it and diagnosing it, but really missing the boat for patient-centered treatment. And then I saw a lot of approaches that seemed intuitive and logical, but just weren't safe, you know? And I wanted really what's happening here and how can we do this effectively? And I'm so excited to talk with your audience because in the last few years, we've learned so much. It's more common than we ever thought. And there's way more room for lifestyle to reverse it than we ever thought. So it's a great time. And what are the, I mean, what are the, the roles of the thyroid and what is thyroid disease? How do you know if you have a thyroid issue? You know, think about somebody wearing a bow tie. It's something about that size and shape and about that place. And it makes these microscopic hormones that control how quickly we make energy, uh, how well our nerves talk to one another within our brain and outside of our brain, and then how well everything fixes itself. So this is not the only thing that affects our bones, of course, but it's one of the things that controls the rate at which we rebuild and break down bone. Also tendons, ligaments, skin, hair, nails, and muscles. So yeah, all tissue repair, this is one of the things that regulates that. But energy, body weight, uh, tissue repair, nerve conduction, you know, mood, energy, movement patterns, those are the main things that it does. And then how are you, you going to be able to tell if something's wrong? there with your thyroid function, or maybe that it's contributing to other health issues that you have? Well, you won't always know without checking. And it can go wrong in terms of getting growing wrong, like getting cancerous or getting nodules. So it can grow wrong. It can work wrong, meaning it can make too much or too little of that hormone, or it can get inflamed and the body can start to attack it. And any one of those, they can overlap, but any one of those things by itself can cause a lot of problems. And for growing wrong, maybe let's talk about each of those growing wrong, sure. working wrong. Let's go down each of those paths. So can we talk about um, why would a thyroid be growing wrong and what does that look like? You know, this is great for, for your audience. I'm sure you've talked about things like this. So I think about each part of the body, imagine like a, like a, like a tile floor and imagine that these tiles wear out and a crew comes in at night and you know, gets a little pick and takes out the old tiles and lays down some new ones, right? And so you got one crew pulling out the old ones and one crew putting in the new ones. And as long as they're in sync, it's all good. But if there's too many tiles coming in or not enough old ones coming out, you get proliferation or degeneration. You get too much junk or not enough healthy tissue. 
So in the case of the thyroid, if its own growth rate is altered, it can proliferate. And right now in North America, the fastest increasing type of cancer in women is thyroid cancer. It's actually tripled over the last couple of decades. So it's way, way, way up on the rise. Uh, thyroid nodules, this is a crazy fact, but you can take your age in years. That's about your percentage risk of having a thyroid nodule. <laughs> and about three to 7% of those thyroid nodules do become cancerous. So that's the main growth issue. And and why is that happening? So why are we getting nodules and why are we why is why could that potentially develop into thyroid cancer also? Yeah, so thyroid disease in general, uh, all those three types of disease share the same underpinnings. And I, I might table that for our, our next stage of our discussion. But yeah, basically there's there's one environmental trigger that stands by itself, and there's genetics and there's age. And there's an interplay of those things behind all these main categories of thyroid disease. And in terms of in terms of testing, how are you going to know if something's not right with your thyroid health? I mean, obviously, well, so this is, it's a growth issue. You could probably feel or see visually, but what about testing? Well, so a growth issue, you're right. If it's bad enough, it can be just visible. There's a lot of stories about celebs where they're doing a show or something and, and a fan says, hey, that's weird. And they write in and the person goes and gets checked out. And sure enough, they had a lump, they need surgery. That happens all the time. Uh, a lot of cases, they can't be seen. They've actually shown that dangerous thyroid cancers, if you get the best doctors that are the best at examining a thyroid, they're going to catch about 10% of those. <laughs> so yeah, so we, we can't be for sure. When we think someone has thyroid problems, we want to get an ultrasound for a starting place. So that's the best evaluation of, of the structure. In terms of the disease itself, the disease generally starts by the body attacking the thyroid and ultimately burns out the thyroid. Now, the problem is that testing is currently done only to assess that burnout stage. And yeah, that's a later stage of the process. And when they're later in the process, that's usually when they're going and seeing their physician. So they may already have all these health issues ahead of time. They go in and see their physician. And then what would be a standard workup that somebody would have done maybe? Yeah, the most common thing is a test for the TSH. This is the thyroid stimulating hormone. This is the pituitary gland asking the thyroid to work. And it's a, it's a backward thing. The thyroid's underactive, this number goes high. If it's overactive, it goes low. And in most cases, if someone suspects thyroid problems, all they'll do is have their TSH tested. Now, the problem there, as we mentioned, is that that can be a later stage change. But it's not even just that, because many people will never have that change. Many will only have that autoimmunity, and they may have that for decades and decades. And that can hugely impact their bone health, that can affect their fertility, that can cause anxiety, that can cause heart disease, you know, tons of symptoms, but it'll never go detected unless it's looked for. And then there's also a connection to thyroid health and our bone health too. Can you talk about what that would be? For sure. So back to that idea of the thyroid telling stuff how quickly to grow. So we've got this activity of osteoclasts, osteoblasts, you know, growing new bone, getting rid of old bone. And there's several different things that control that throttle but thyroid hormones are very central there. And actually that TSH that I mentioned that tells the thyroid to work, it also tells the bone to grow. So if that's not there, or if that's there in the wrong amounts, we can get too little bone or poor quality bone. And what are the and even, I'm sorry, briefly, independent of that, the autoimmune part can also affect bone health. We have data showing that now as well. And what are the levels of, of thyroid hormone that you like to see? 
So the numbers, a big discussion is, you know, what, what's normal, what's healthy. So data has been done to say in populations uh, of those who have the lowest thyroid symptoms, the lowest risk for thyroid disease, where do they fit in that continuum of normal? And remember the TSH was backwards. So high is low and low is high. So healthy people, and also those with thyroid disease that have better health outcomes, generally have a low normal TSH. So they're not below range, but they're generally on the lower side of normal. In terms of numbers, normal ranges are generally between 0.4 to 0.5 and about four and a half. And healthier people are usually between that, the bottom end of that 0.5 and like two roughly. So yeah, a really important point though, is that if someone's not there, that doesn't mean they benefit from medication. <laughs> that's a hugely important difference. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that because that's what's going to happen if, for most people when they go into their physician and it's it's not in the right range or not where it needs to be. That would be the recommendation, right? So what are the treatments? Kevin, you're going to need to put a leash on me in a minute here because I get out of control on this one. <laughs> go for it. Go so for here it. comes the rant. Uh, yeah. Abnormal thyroid levels cause these problems. And if we were in a logical, simple world, you would think that fixing those levels would make those problems go away. And there's now about 30 million Americans on these medications. This is between the number one and number three most widely prescribed medication in the world in any given year. So this is pretty much why people go to the pharmacy. And we now know that over 90% of people, the level of thyroid dysfunction they had could have caused weight gain, could have caused fatigue, could have raised their heart disease risk long-term, could have affected their bones, could have raised the risk for thyroid cancer, could do all that stuff. However, for 90% of people or more, medications will not help any of those problems at all. It'll actually cause more risks for other issues, including bone problems, cancer risk, and total mortality risk. But for almost all people who are put on thyroid medications, it will not help them feel better, lose weight, have less risk of diseases or have better outcomes. Can we talk about each of the specific medications maybe? And uh, like from a uh, conventional perspective, what somebody may be uh, recommended and then even a natural on the natural sure. side. And yeah, just to clarify, what I'm saying is not so much my emotional rant, but this was a, a large meta analysis in the British Medical Journal from about a year and a half ago. And it's saying, look, we're screwing up. You know, We're putting people on medicine thinking it's going to help in ways that it doesn't. It causes more problems than good. This is a huge thing. There's different kinds of thyroid medication. The biggest question is who needs them? You know, Many people get in this path of, am I on the right one? Am I in the right amount? I'm always juggling and my scores are never stable. They didn't need it to begin with. You know, It's a fool's errand. You know, they're, they're chasing a red herring. And it's, it's not that they're trying so hard to get this thing right, but they're trying the wrong thing to begin with. That's the core issue for so many cases. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's a very similar situation with osteopenia and osteoporosis too. It's the majority of people that I see too, it's, uh, there's so many other things that can be done before they get to that point. Haven't even been tried usually before they jump into a medication then. Well, and this is a case to where it's a really important distinction to see between the body doing what it does and then us intervening on the body doing what it does. And for quite a while, I, I would have thought that if what you're giving is identical to the body, if, you're, if it's a natural hormone, if you're, giving, if you're achieving normal, healthy blood levels, I would have thought that someone like that is just like somebody else who's doing it by themselves. But I, I can't, that's, un, that's unsustainable. The, the data is so clear that that's not the case. One big study from South Korea tracked over a million and a half people for four years. And one large group was on thyroid medication, reasonable amounts, 
the other group was identical in every way imaginable. They had the same risk factors for death, like 19% hypertension in each group. It was amazingly matched groups. They had the same thyroid levels. One group was slightly medicated. One group was not. The mortality risks were twice as high in the medicated group. So yeah, so taking a hormone is not the same as making a hormone. And when we intervene on what the body does, even if we think we can measure parts of what's happening, it's not the same. Now, beyond just medications, I've heard you speak about the dangers of too much iodine for those that are prone to thyroid disease. Can you talk about how you discovered this and why someone would limit their thyroid in, or their, pardon me, their iodine intake? This is a, this is a really hopeful story. It's a fun one. So for a lot of, lot of years, all I knew about was the dangers, you know, and um, nutrients, everyone gets that you can get too little, you know, if you're out at sea and there's no oranges, you might get scurvy, right? <laughs> you know, and, and everyone knows that that doesn't mean that that one drop of lime juice is enough to make you optimally healthy. And there's also a point at where vitamin C can give you diarrhea, right? Like, you know, 10,000 milligrams a day or something. But by and large, there's not a lot of concern about overdosing on nutrients. You know, the toxicity is not a big thing. But iodine's different from all the others. And the reason why is the body has a special pump. So the amounts of it in circulation and in active tissues is thousands of fold lower than it is for all of the nutrients. So the body has a pump that also acts as a gatekeeper. So it pulls in just enough and it closes the gate to prevent there being too much. Now, because of that, that makes the therapeutic window of iodine really narrow. And for some people, even narrower yet. So in terms of actual numbers, no matter what your diet is, unless it's only raw vegetables and no salt, no joke, unless that's what your diet is, you're going to get 50 to 100 micrograms per day from any diet, at least that much. So the range in which we see the lowest rates of adult thyroid disease is about 20 to 200 micrograms per day. Now, anyone can get harmed if they're consistently above about 1,000 micrograms per day. But those prone to thyroid disease, it's 200. So yeah, so this dietary amount they're already getting is about half of that. So if they get pushed above that from, you know, some dietary sources having more than others, uh, extra iodine and salt, some in supplements, they get thyroid disease. But the exciting part we'll talk more about is most of them can also reverse that. And what are some of those foods that are, that are the really high iodine foods also that may be continually pushing them over? Yeah. So the biggest sources, this is kind of weird. So there's there's like half a dozen main sources. And of them, many of those foods, the amount of iodine in those foods has been pretty static over the decades. And the amount of these foods, as far as what proportion they are in our diet has been pretty static. But a couple of the foods, the amount of iodine and the amount of those foods we consume has gone up. Those two, those two are processed grains and dairy food. And it's a contaminant in both of them. It's not a normally occurring additive, but of the dietary sources of iodine, 23 of the top 25 have more than doubled in the last three decades. And they're pretty much all from those two categories. So those are the two big ones. The other ones are also relevant because it all stacks up. So when someone's working to get to a low threshold to reverse their thyroid disease, they wanna go lower. But yeah, those two are the big ones. We get iodine and salt. It can be added in or naturally occurring. We get a fair amount in egg yolks. We get a fair amount in seafood, some more than others. And there's a fair amount in seaweed, AKA sea vegetables. And can you talk about, I know when you said dairy there for a second, some of the other ones, how, how is iodine getting into dairy? So people understand that. 
Yeah, so this is weird. Um, a couple of ways, uh, one of which is that it's used as a teat sanitizer. They're working to phase that out right now. And it's not universal, but farmers have known for some time that it's iodine is also an irritant and it's also not cost effective. So they get more and more skin irritation from chronic use of it. So in the coming years, this may now be moot, hopefully. But yeah, you paint it on the cow's teats, you put the vacuum on and you suck the milk out and some of that iodine works its way in and microscopic amounts add up. So the other thing is that cows are often given fish meal as a cheap protein source that can have a buildup of that. And then some cow food has iodine fortified into it. Interesting. And are there, now we're talking about ways that could, could push your iodine level too much. Are there things that could be reducing your iodine level too? Uh, yeah, we've had, we've had six documented cases of iodine deficiency in the United States since 1980. So it happens. Uh, and all those six cases were people that were on diets that consumed only raw vegetables, uh, no salt, nothing else. Several also had inflammatory bowel disease. They were malabsorbing. There's a lot of popular ideas about iodine being pushed out by halides, you know, bromide or chlorine or fluoride. Those come up quite a bit. That's a fascinating thing. Did you know bromide is now the, the most recently categorized essential mineral? <laughs> we now know our bodies require it. It turns out it's in so many sources, we hadn't really recognized deficiency states of it. But there was one study in which they gave supplemental doses of bromide way higher than background exposure and closely tracked thyroid function and closely tracked iodine levels. No effects whatsoever. So yeah, there's there's a lot of popular ideas that bounce around in natural medicine that make sense, but just aren't really grounded with the facts. And that's, that's one of them. Interesting. And what are your thoughts on uh, high doses of iodine. There are different camps here, right? Sure. When it comes to iodine, what are the different camps? And then what are your, your thoughts on the high dose iodine? Yeah. So iodine, this is fascinating. This is the most studied nutrient we have, you know, full stop. Uh, we started looking at it over a century ago and knowing about it made us discover about other vitamins. So we've got lots of data points on it and that we can put that all here. And then we've got a group of ideas that kind of cluster together starting in 1998. A dear man who's a gynecologist, he's passed away. I spent a ton of time with him on the phone. He saw a study showing how high-dose iodine lowered the symptoms of fibrocystic breast disease. Now, well-intended, but not really having a nutritional background, he conflated iodine as a drug with iodine as a nutrient. So if, uh, if I went outside and snagged my skin on a thorn, I could get infected and iodine might stop that infection. But that wouldn't be an iodine deficiency, right? So yeah, there's ways in which iodine can actually stop the effects of iodine absorption. And that's how it lowered those symptoms. But he conflated that to mean they were iodine deficient. And he wrote a series of papers over the following four years that others went on and shared just directly as they were. And they became quite influential in natural medicine. So there's like dozens of ideas that just all stem from this, this one little thing. And then we've got this other century worth of database on iodine. And, and your focus is, you know, it may be helpful to limit that iodine intake. It's not good or bad. It's just amounts, you know, and we, we see right now in 92, 112 nations on earth were categorized as severely iodine deficient. You know, they were, they needed more. It was, they, they were below a good range. Uh, by 2014, that number was brought down to zero. The United States as an average, our intake that remember that 50 to 200 thing, we're clocking in around 170 to 180 on an average. But when we look more deeply at subpopulations, if we look per age, ethnicity, and gender, uh, many subpopulations have between 20 to 40% of individuals 
above that 200 microgram threshold. So some people get too much. And when they develop thyroid disease from that, there have now been multiple studies showing that if they can get to a low enough level, they've got about an 80% chance of fully reversing most forms of thyroid disease. And so do you typically encourage people when they have their supplements or they're taking their supplements or they're like looking at their diet too? And I know you have a, a book on this specifically, also the thyroid reset diet. Could you talk a little bit about that? And what are the things that people should be evaluating in their daily lives and their plans to make sure they have the right amounts of certain nutrients for thyroid health? Sure. So iodine is the biggest one by far. You know, one one study suggested that of all the factors relevant to thyroid function that we can control. So remember, I talked about age, gender, and then a big environmental trigger, the big one being iodine. Of all the things we can control, we can't control age and gender. But the things that we can, many have argued that everything together is less relevant than iodine is by itself. So yeah, that's that's the big one. You want to not be deficient in any nutrient for lots of reasons, uh, all facets of health. But for your thyroid, yeah, iodine, selenium, zinc, iron, these are the big ones that make the, the, the most differences. And can you talk about your book also, The Thyroid Reset Diet, and how you d decided to develop this and kind of give us a preview into what that looks like? You know, I came across a big study that took people who had had rather advanced hypothyroidism. For those who have heard these numbers, I mentioned the TSH, like 0.4 to 4.5. In the study, the average TSH score was 14.1. They had been markedly hypothyroid for over four years, and most had clear signs of autoimmunity. And they did nothing other than lower their iodine for three months. Within those three months, 78.3% of people had perfectly normal thyroid function. They'd been off for more than four years. They were not given medication. They were just, and they weren't given, it wasn't healthy diet per se. It was just this one variable was all that they changed. And the 70.3%, I'd take that and run with it. But that kind of short sells how cool this was because a good chunk of people were not compliant. You know, they, they measured their iodine output and like, yeah, well, you know, I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Okay. But they were part of those numbers, right? And another chunk of people radically improved, but they didn't normalize. Like they went from scores of 200 down to 50. So they didn't go in the 78%, but they got a whole lot better. So if we were to reword that and say, of those who did it, you know, how many were totally cured or got a heck of a lot better? That number was 97%. And there was multiple studies just like that on different versions of thyroid disease. So I saw these and like, no one's talking about this. So yeah, I had to just make that really public. And the other thing was that this was observed from people who were put on low iodine diets before they were getting a procedure done. There's some procedures that you need to have the body in a low iodine state to work well. And these diets are mostly constructed to where they're only going to be on them for a week or two. And so they didn't have to think about being complete diets or easy diets or tasty diets or you know healthy diets. Just, just cut all this stuff out for two weeks and then don't ever do that again. And I didn't want to do that because many people would do this for months and months on end. So I wanted to say, what else do we know about thyroid health? And what else is relevant to your healthy diet in general? You know, let's put this together and do it in a way to where we can get to that target to really reverse these thyroid problems. That's amazing. And I, I mean, I know you've put together now multiple uh, bodies of work and books. Can you actually just talk about what are all the, the resources that you have available to people right now? Well, that was the most recent one that was really focused on reversing thyroid disease uh, on medication or not. Uh, Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, subclinical, Graves' disease, all those versions can be useful for. 
The prior one was metabolism reset. And that was kind of my best stab at what do you do if you can't lose weight? You know, and, and specifically for those with thyroid disease, but yeah, it weight, weight problems, fatty liver, prediabetes. That was my real good attempt at how to address it. You know, and just a couple points, uh, I realized that a diet that's a healthy diet you can live with might not reverse a problem, <laughs> you know? So it takes doing something different for a while. And that's something different might not be something you should live with. It might need to be deliberate and short-term. So yeah, how can you do a short process to reverse the way the body is storing fuel wrong and have the liver work right again so the body can burn fat effectively for fuel? So that was the metabolism reset. And before that was the adrenal reset. And these, these three were in a theme I've written others, but to touch on these. So that was really about this whole thing about our circadian cortisol rhythm. And yeah, there's so many ways in which modern life throws that off. Uh, chronic, chronic stress, you know, blood sugar issues, sleep problems. And the implications of that are massive. You know, one study showed that an abnormal cortisol slope can be a stronger predictor of death than smoking status is. You know, it's a, it's a big deal. And so the thought was, it's not that the adrenals are broken. It's not that they're fatigued. It's that the body is in this state to where the timing is disrupted. So how do you get that back again? And there's cortisol. Its main job is as a glucose regulating hormone, a glucocorticoid. So the thought was, how can you time carbohydrate in a way to recreate healthy cortisol rhythm? And that was the basic idea behind the adrenal reset diet. That's great. And, um, and then you've also got this, uh, you've got the hormone healing cookbook. Is that right? Too? Yeah, Talk this is the that. newest. I'm excited about this. So part of this was a cookbook. So part of this was everyone has done these various resets and like, Hey, Dr. C, I want more recipes. So that was part of it. But another part was, yeah, I'm in this, this perimenopause menopausal change. I'm struggling with weight, fatigue, brain fog, hot flashes, sleep issues. I'm not sure about hormones, but other treatments I'm doing them. They're not enough. Are there some natural ways to help? And the cool thing is there's massive data sets about the effect of phytonutrients specifically on those hormonal problems. You know, the stuff in plants can help our body heal our hormones. We co-evolved with plants and we can use them to deliberately regulate these things. So like here's 80 great recipes. And if you want to tackle one of those five problems, here's a two week menu list that'll target all the things just for that. <laughs> Any one of those. I love that. I love that. And I know uh, specifically, I know we were originally just talking about the thyroid reset diet, but it's it's great to know that if you have thyroid disease, any thyroid conditions, that there are things you can do there. You can absolutely improve those things. Um, and I know you just talked about um, all your books there, but could you maybe just share where can people find you and all your resources and things like that? And then if there are any other notes that you think are important for our audience to understand, maybe just share that with them as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, my main hub is drchristensen.com, S-O-N, the main website. If you plug in Alan Christensen, you'll find it, but that's that's where it all stems from. Things to share. I just got a briefly on my rant about medications. People can need them. They can be totally appropriate, thyroid medications. But when they're not needed, the all the studies I mentioned about showing how they didn't work as well that spawned other studies saying, well, then what do you do? Then can people come off? How does that work? So the term is deprescribing. And there's a lot of data sets now around that. I've written tons of big articles and videos talking about it, but we now know that of most people on thyroid medication, 84% can successfully take less and about half can successfully take none. And by successfully, I mean, 
no symptoms, no abnormal blood levels. And those numbers came from studies in which there wasn't a whole lot of nuanced stuff going on. It was pretty much just, here's a taper schedule, you know, have fun. <laughs> but with thoughtful steps, the kind of good advice you're giving with covering your nutrients well, that 84% can be better. So most people can have some of their function come back or all of it. And that's that's a big win. Wonderful. And what would be the three biggest takeaways, if you could name any, uh, that, that you would want people to walk away from this conversation with? Boy, the single biggest one is that you're you're in charge of what's happening with your body. You know, and the decisions you make on a daily basis are more powerful than anything. I've gone through stages of this to where originally that was my big thing, you know, lifestyle. The further I got into medical training, there was times in which you can't help but get excited about the power of medication and you can intervene as an endocrinologist. You can change these levels. We can intervene in various ways. We can give medications. And I can realize that they have their place, but they're not powerful. You know, the things that we can do in our, our movement outside, you know, our, our relationships, our sleep, our diet, that's the, that's the real medicine that that's the big guns. And you guys have control of that. You've got a resource here of Kevin for information, on how to do that better. So yeah, don't, don't ever think that, that you need more than that. <laughs> I love that. What a great message. And, you know, for everybody listening, I want to make sure you have access to all of Dr. Alan Christensen's resources. You can find all of that over at bonecoach.com forward slash Dr. Alan Christensen, thyroid reset diet. We're going to have all the links in the show notes. And then also Dr. Alan Christensen is on Instagram too. We'll make sure we link to his Instagram page as well. Um, and I just want to thank everybody again so much for your time. We'll see you in the next episode. Hope you found this episode of the Bone Coach Show helpful. You can find all the resources, show notes, everything mentioned over at bonecoach.com. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, be sure to share it with someone you love, a friend, family member, even a group of people. And also be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode that can help you improve your bones, your health, and your future. One last reminder, if you haven't done so already, head over to bonecoach.com for more great resources to help you get on the path to stronger bones and an active future. I'm your bone coach, Kevin Ellis. I'll see you in the next episode.